Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro-seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition we'll feature IQ tests and plutonium credit. But first up, here's the news with Therese Chen and me, Ian Wolfe. Cyber Rats. A team at Duke University has given rats the ability to see infrared light by wiring infrared sensors to the rats' brains. The paper, published in Nature Communications, was titled Perceiving Invisible Light Through a Somatosensory Cortical Prosthesis. The infrared signals are sent to the part of their brains that processes the sense of touch in their whiskers. Importantly, they found that the same neurons were still firing from stimulation of the rat's whiskers as by the infrared sensor, so the new infrared sense didn't replace the old whisker-touching sense. It was an extra sense. This is a demonstration of neuroplasticity, the ability of brains to rewire themselves to adapt to new conditions. The experiment shows that a new sensory input can be interpreted by a region of the brain that normally does something else without interfering in the normal functioning of the brain. They didn't have to lose something to gain the new sense. Traditionally, prosthetics have been designed to replace a lost function. This is the first paper published about prosthetics designed to give a new ability. We're treading now in the realm of the transhumanists. The experiment featured a chamber with three light sources that could be switched at random. The rats were to indicate which light was on by putting their nose into a port which rewarded them with sugar water. After they'd learned the task, the rats' brains were implanted with tiny microelectrodes a tenth of the width of a human hair and connected to the infrared detectors mounted above their eyes. Then they were released into the chamber again with the lights replaced by invisible infrared lights. Over the course of a month, they went from treating the infrared light as if their whiskers had been touched to understanding that the lights were in the distance and started exploring in the dark, sweeping the infrared sensor on their head back and forth like a search lamp, sampling the world. They were able to home in on the invisible lights and sip their sweet reward, 7 out of 10 times. You can see videos of the augmented rats with their sixth sense at www.diffusionradio.com. With fresh rats, the Duke University biologists implanted microwires again, but this time in the primary motor cortex of two rats. They set one as the encoder and the other as the decoder, before wiring them up. Both rats had previously been trained to press one of two levers, left or right, in response to a light over the correct lever, with a reward of sugar water. After being wired up, as the encoder rat responded to the light appearing over one lever or the other, its pattern of brain activity was sent to a computer, which simplified the pattern and then transmitted it to the decoder rat. So this is not exactly telepathy, nor even an extra sense, 
as a signal was sent to the motor cortex to make the rat move. Again, it took 45 days of training for an hour a day before they got a result above chance. 7 out of 10 times, the decoder rat pressed the right lever without being able to see any lights. It's likely the rat felt an urge to move that it eventually gave into, and that it learned it would be rewarded when it did. They went further and sent the computer signal without hooking up the encoder rat, and finally they sent the signal from one rat to the other over the internet, between the rat in Brazil and a rat in North Carolina. Of course, the rat would have pressed the right lever 5 out of 10 times, purely by chance. So maybe 7 times out of 10 isn't so much better. The research was funded by the Defence Advanced Research Projects Agency. The paper, published in Nature Scientific Reports, was titled A Brain-to-Brain Interface for Real-Time Sharing of Sensorimotor Information. And here's what two lab rats had to say about the issue. And now, the part of the brain, performed by <laughs> the brain. Yes. Neocortex frontal lobe. Brainstem! Brainstem! Hippocampus neural node. Right hemisphere. Pons and cortex visual. Brainstem! Brainstem! Sylvian fissure pineal. Left hemisphere. Cerebellum left. Cerebellum right. Synapse hypothalamus. Striatum dendrite. On fibers, matter gray. Central tegmental pathway, temporal lobe. White core matter for brain skull. Central fissure, cord spinal, parietal. Diameter, meningeal vein, medulla oblongata, and lobe limbic. Microelectrodes. The brain. That ought to keep the little squirts happy. Yeah! Flowers attract humans and animals alike. Now, recent research published in the Journal of Science suggests that there may also be an electric attraction. As they travel through the air in search of pollen, bees experience frictional force with various particles and in the process become positively charged. In contrast, Plants typically possess a negative charge. The researchers investigated the resulting electric field produced between the two with electrodes to determine whether the bees were able to discriminate between different electric fields. In this instance, they used artificial petunias, one with a charge of 30 volts and the other zero. The bees underwent associative learning using sucrose for a correct response and bitter quinine for an incorrect one. Over 50 trials, they found an increase in the relative number of visits to flowers which were rewarding, eventually achieving an accuracy of approximately 80% in comparison to a random choice model in the last 10 trials. After grounding both flowers so no electric cue was present, this accuracy dropped to a statistically insignificant 54%. They also discovered that bees required less time to learn to discriminate when they were able to use both electric and color cues. 
We think bumblebees are using this ability to perceive electric fields to determine if flowers were recently visited by others and are therefore worth visiting, says Professor Daniel Robert from the University of Bristol's School of Biological Sciences. How the bees detect the electric fields is a potential area of further research. The scientists speculate that the mechanism lies in the bees being hairy. Publicly funded science should be available to the public. John P. Holdren, science advisor to President Obama, released a six-page memorandum to US government departments last week asking all departments spending over $100 million to work on a plan to make all their data and results available to the public no more than 12 months after they've been published behind the paywall in private journals. His memorandum read, The administration is committed to ensuring that to the greatest extent and with the fewest constraints possible, and consistent with the law and the objective set out below, the direct results of federally funded scientific research are made available to and useful for the public, industry and the scientific community. Such results include peer-reviewed publications and digital data. Scientific research supported by the federal government catalyzes innovative breakthroughs that drive our economy. The results of that research become the grist for new insights and are assets for progress in areas such as health, energy, the environment, agriculture, and national security. Federal agencies that spend more than $100 million have six months to submit their plan for making their data easily available to the public. Myron Gutman, Assistant Director of the National Science Foundation, estimates there are 25,000 to 40,000 papers published every year from research funded by the National Science Foundation. In May 2012, an online White House petition calling for free access over the internet to scientific journal articles arising from taxpayer-funded research gathered 65,000 signatures. The new policies are expected to be modelled on the policy of the National Institute of Health, which puts all its papers on the publicly available PubMed site a year after they've been published in a private scientific journal. They estimate that 40% of people who access the articles on PubMed are not academics. Private scientific journals charge $30 per article or $20,000 for a year's subscription to their journals, keeping science out of the hands of the public and copyrighted. A war for accessible science was revealed by the suicide of Aaron Schwartz in January 2013 after he was threatened by the Department of Justice with 35 years in prison. Despite handing back the many academic journal articles he'd copied, who is being prosecuted under the premise that breaching a website's terms of service is a federal crime under a law that was passed before websites had even been invented. This memorandum is a great decision by the Obama administration and a huge win for science. Of course, the question remains, why should the public wait even a year for access to publicly funded research?
for our features, we have blasts from the diffusion past. From diffusion, then discovery, May 1999, nearly 15 years ago, credit cards. They're our flexible friends in times of cash crisis. They're also a status symbol, if their colour is gold or especially platinum. But before you wave either around, consider that there might be something on the horizon with a little more glow than gold or platinum could ever manage. It goes right to the atomic heart of the most picky of status symbol seekers. Carol Oliver reports. What have credit cards got to do with a periodic table? Not much, unless you're into status, letting folks know that you're in there with the big kitties when it comes to the weight of the wallet. Throw a common or garden credit card on the counter with panache and the sales clerk will say dryly, without looking up, is that check savings or credit? She might leave off the last option, credit, if you're still spotty and look to be under 18. Not so gold, or so it seems. But before you lay your gold credit card on the table with confidence, before you wait for the slight pause of the proper respect from the waiter, beware, gold is getting to be passe. Platinum's debut really sorts out the moneyed wheat from the minion chaff, according to Dr. Stanley Rudin and Dorian Rudin in the Annals of Improbable Research. They set out to research what card would be next, beginning with the crystal ball of chemistry, the periodic table. You'll remember that Dmitri Mendeleev, the 17th child of a Siberian schoolteacher, figured out the relationship of the elements and created the periodic table. We might have had this somewhat sooner than 1869 if the father of modern chemistry, Antoine Lavoisier, hadn't lost his head in the French Revolution in 1794. His great scientific mind fell into a blood-soaked basket at the foot of the guillotine because he had been unwise enough to be a member of the fermiers, the much-hated tax farmers. Lavoisier was only 50 years old, but his achievements were many. He was the first to realise that phlogiston, proposed in the 17th century, did not exist. Phlogiston was supposed to be a mysterious or pervasive element that added weight to some substances when burned. What actually was at work was oxygen, correctly identified by Lavoisier in 1777. Perhaps more importantly, Lavoisier showed what an element was, a substance that could not be broken down into simpler substances when treated chemically. What he did was to lay the foundation for more careful examination of the relationship of the elements. John Dalton in England picked up the baton when he began to work out the relative atomic weights or masses and composed a table in 1803 based on calculations by Lavoisier and others. Later Mendeleev used cards to note each of the known elements, their atomic weight and properties. When he arranged these, he found that the atomic weight determines the nature of the element. Those elements with similar properties have atomic weights close together like manganese at 55 and iron at 56. He also noted the distinct similarities of elements over uniform distance in atomic weights. Thus, the lithium at 7, sodium 23 and potassium 39 are all soft and silvery, today known as the alkali metals or group 1 of the periodic table. So the periodic table is arranged in weights or periods horizontally and in groups vertically, providing chemistry with an important tool. A cultural aside on protecting status and privilege. Mendeleev married a 17-year-old while still married to his first wife, who had borne him two children. 
When a nobleman challenged the Tsar on this, the Tsar replied, Mendeleev has two wives, yes, but I have only one Mendeleev, rather like a gold credit card. Don't leave home without it. Well, back to the periodic table. Can we use this to determine what will come after platinum, like using some fractal method to make money on the stock market? Only this is in predicting the future of credit card status. Stanley and Dorian Rudin looked at the progression from gold to platinum using the periodic table. Remember, atomic number is the number of protons in the nucleus of an atom and equals the number of electrons in a neutral atom. Atomic weight today is the relative weight of an atom compared to carbon-12. Gold's atomic number is 79 and its atomic weight is 197. Platinum turns out to be lighter with an atomic number of 78 and an atomic weight of 195. Clearly, no chemist was involved here. The Rudins concluded that platinum only has more status weight because some bubble head in an advertising agency decided it should be so. If silver had come before gold, it would have worked out. But somehow, silver doesn't have the same ring to it, does it? So what is next? Well, assuming the chemist gets to rain on this issue, then the Rudins suggest plutonium. That has an atomic number of 94 and an atomic weight of 244. It also costs so much to produce that a bevy of spy satellites would be required to protect it. The ultimate credit card status symbol. However, it does have some downsides. It had never passed through an airport detector and may cause death to the owner. Hasta la vista, baby. That was Carol Oliver searching her wallet for a plutonium credit card. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Send email to diffusion at 2SER.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network, into Sydney on 2SER 107.3, and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Next up, also from May 1999, Lachlan Watmore tells us about the role of the IQ test in the history of intelligence testing. shows ago, I talked about the 19th century science of craniometry and its failure to describe variations in human intelligence. Craniometry is the measurement of the skull and its contents, and it fell apart as a serious discipline because, despite the best of objective intentions, its researchers were hamstrung from the beginning by preconceived ideas of how their data should turn out and were constantly changing criteria to meet unexpected results. I would now like to address the method of establishing intelligence that came after craniometry, the technique of mental testing that led to an individual being assigned a number called their intelligence quotient, or IQ. IQ is one of those terms like kilojoule or ecology that many people are familiar with and at the same time don't really know its exact meaning. As I mentioned, IQ stands for intelligence quotient. 
A quotient is the product of a mathematical division. For example, the quotient of 12 divided by 3 is 4. Let's now look at how IQ testing arose. In 1904, a Frenchman called Alfred Binet was commissioned by the French Minister of Public Education to devise a test that would single out children who would probably need special attention in the classroom. The test was to be a rough indicator of which kids might have learning difficulties so that they may be helped along from the start and not left behind. Binet was the director of the Sorbonne's psychology laboratory and before the turn of the century had been a committed craniometrician like his countryman Paul Broca. Unlike Broca, he soon rejected craniometry as unsound, quoting, among other reasons, the prejudices of the researcher, which was a statement well ahead of its time. The impartiality and objectivity of a scientist was beyond question in those days, as far as the general public was concerned. Despite the collapse of craniometry, Binet remained extremely interested in the measure of intelligence and took advantage of the Department of Education's commission to tackle the problem from a different angle. The measurement of heads or other physical features was clearly pointless. Intelligence could only be measured, Binet reasoned, by what came out of a head, not the contents within. To that end, Binet devised a series of short tasks of increasing complexity. A child was to begin with the simplest task and work her way up until she could no longer complete the next one. The tasks themselves were formulated to measure a child's ability to reason, not his level of education. Four areas of reasoning were addressed, ordering objects into categories, inventiveness, comprehension and correcting mistakes. Time doesn't permit me to go into much detail here, but I would like to quote Binet on the general philosophy of the tests. In 1905 he said, it is the intelligence alone that we seek to measure by disregarding as far as possible the degree of instruction which the child possesses. We give him nothing to read, nothing to write, and submit him to no test in which he might succeed by rote learning. Each task was given a number denoting the youngest age at which normal, quote unquote, kids could do it. This number was then quoted as a child's mental age if it was the last task she could successfully complete. So in other words, a 10-year-old who could only complete a task usually accomplished by 9-year-olds and couldn't do one usually accomplished by 10-year-olds was given a mental age of 9. Initially, the mental age was subtracted from the chronological age and the higher the number, the more the child needed help. This was soon changed when it was pointed out that a 4-year-old with a mental age of 2 and a 16-year-old with a mental age of 14 would get the same value and instead the mental age was divided by the chronological age to give a percentage, which was then multiplied by 100 to get rid of the decimal point. Thus, the division of the mental age by the chronological age provided a quotient, and the term intelligence quotient was born. In the first instalment of this series, I spoke of biological determinism, or the idea that a person's social and economic status are largely determined by his or her genes. Biological determinism is the major tool of racists, sexists, and other extreme hereditarians as an explanation for the stratification of society into tiers of ascending wealth and privilege or as an excuse to victimise minority groups. Alfred Binet took enormous pains to remind people that his tests were only a rough guide to the ability of children, that they didn't form the basis of a universal theory of intelligence and given that these tests were designed to help improve a child's ability, the idea of an innate intelligence fixed from birth was actually dangerous intellectual ground.
Unfortunately, Binet died in 1911, and his theoretical warning went unheeded by the next generation of intelligence testers, who eagerly took up his methods while ignoring their theoretical basis. The new application of IQ testing took place mainly in the United States, and was championed at various stages by three men. H. H. Goddard, who introduced the scale to America and declared it to be a measure of innate intelligence. L. M. Terman, who invented the Stanford Binet IQ scale with utopian visions of a society stratified according to ability. And R. M. Yerkes, who first used the test on a large scale by testing one and three quarter million soldiers during the First World War. If you find my series on intelligence testing interesting, remember those three names, Goddard, Terman and Yerkes, and stay tuned. In the weeks to come, I'll be presenting the final part of this series, which looks at how IQ testing became, at best, a poor measure of a person's innate ability, and at worst, a major factor in biological determinism and the subsequent pigeonholing of people according to their perceived merit. was Lachlan Watmore with the history of intelligence testing from May 1999, nearly 15 years ago. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. In the study of sciences found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. And that's all from us this time on Diffusion. If you'd like to contribute to the show, we need more volunteers on Diffusion. You can send your contributions, congratulations, standing ovations, gasps of amazement and helpful suggestions to diffusion at 2SCR.com. That's diffusion at 2SCR.com. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program was Therese Chen, and from 1999, Lachlan Watmore and Carol Oliver. I produce Diffusion in the studios of 2SCR in Sydney, and Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Looking at the URL, the first thing that sticks out is the colon. And how about a slashing or cutting sound for the slashes? To complete the experience, we might throw in the HTTP and maybe some kind of download sound. www.diffusionradio.com Lachlan Watmore on guitar.